Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to start in James chapter 5 this evening. James chapter 5. James is one of the earliest uh, New Testament letters that was written. This is um, uh, Jesus' half-brother that, uh, that wrote this. He was, immediately after Peter, he was, uh, uh, became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And uh, he was beheaded, one of the first uh, of the apostles, to die as a martyr. And, um, and he wrote this letter, obviously, before that. As I said, it was one of the first letters around. And it's really only the, the first letter, the only letter that's written by a pastor from a pastor's point of view. So we'll pick up uh, in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. He says, Is any sick among you? Let him, meaning the sick, call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, folks, I want you to notice a couple of things about this. This is the only instruction that's given to the church on how to minister healing in the church. It's the only place that we've been given instruction concerning people walking in health and maintaining a position of divine health in their lives. Now, notice the way James starts off and asks this. He said, is any sick among you? It's as if he expects there not to be. He asked it certainly in a different way than we would talk about it today or refer to the subject today. Today, we would say the large majority of you, the large percentage of the congregation that's sick, here's instruction for you. But he says it in such a way and with such let me say it this way. He's led by the Holy Ghost to issue and exude such confidence so as to imply and identify that the church is a place where sickness should not exist. Within the body of Christ, according to James, we have a means and a method for walking in divine health and overcoming any attack of sickness that might come. Is any sick among you? He doesn't say, is any sick among you? Pray and see if God wants to heal you. He says, is any sick among you? Here's instruction for you. Well, what is that instruction? Let's read it again. Let him, the sick, call for the elders of the church, and let them, meaning the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. This word save is also the word heal. You could well understand being saved from sickness is being healed. And a lot of times I think we get our eyes on the, the elders. And the, in the New Testament where the Bible talks about elders, that corresponds to what we know of as ministry staff. The staff of the church. So we all, a lot of times people get their eyes on the, the elders. They get their eyes on the anointing with all. And those are good things. Those are right things. And, and each of those have um, significance to the Jews specifically. That's why Paul never did anoint with oil or we don't have any record that he anointed with oil. If the anointing with oil was the important issue, then Paul would have carried an oil bottle around with him and ministered like that. And the Bible tells us there are even a couple of occasions where Jesus in his earthly ministry anointed people with oil. The Jewish ritual or the Jewish... Um, custom of anointing with oil just simply means something is being separated to the use and the service of God. 
That's what the anointing with oil means. It means that something, or in this case someone, would be separated unto God's use. In other words, James is saying by the Holy Ghost, and what I believe the Holy Ghost is getting across to us, is commit yourself to the Lord. The work of the sick is to commit themselves to the Lord. Brother Hagin used to tell a story about uh, a lady that was, uh, came to a meeting that he had or was holding in a certain part of the country. And uh, he, was having a, he had a healing line, so he had several people uh, lined up. And he came to her and he said the Lord just quickened him and stopped him before he prayed for her. He was ministering with the healing anointing, and so uh, under those circumstances, he usually wouldn't stop and ask somebody what they were there for or, or anything else. He'd just go down through the line and minister with that anointing before it ran out. But the Lord quickened him, and so he stopped and did according to what the Lord had uh, uh, told him to do. He asked the woman, why do you want to be healed? And her answer was, so that I can play tennis. And Brother Hagin answered her and said, well, there's nothing wrong with playing tennis, but that's not the reason why you should want to be healed. Well, she got mad and turned around and went away. He went back to the same place a year, year and a half later, whenever it was. And here's this same woman. She comes up in the line. Now, Brother Hagin ordinarily wouldn't remember somebody with all the people that he saw and ministered to and so forth, but because that was such a unique situation, he remembered her. So he got to her. He wasn't even ministering with the anointing at that point. He was just ministering by faith in the name of Jesus through the laying on of hands. And so she was there, and he says, I see you've come. She said, yes, and I'll be healed too. And Brother Hagin said, how do you know? She said, because I want to be healed for the glory of God, not to play tennis. Well, Brother Hagin laid hands on her, and he said the power of God jumped from his hand into her, and she was instantly healed. Now, you can well understand there's nothing wrong with playing tennis or any other sport or any other activity that you might be involved in. But we should want to operate in the manner that God intended for us to operate, stand in the position of divine health that Jesus paid the price for us to have. Wouldn't you agree? And that brought instant results for her. So here the Bible says that the instructions for the sick in the church is to call for the elders and let them pray over the sick, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. But notice it's not the elders that heal them. Notice it's not the anointing with oil that does the job. It says the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. The prayer of faith shall heal the sick. So whether it's an elder that's anointing with oil or whether it's anybody anointing with oil at all, whether there are elders, whether there are oils involved, the prayer of faith heals the sick. And then notice what it says, and it says the Lord shall raise them up. Folks, notice we have a part to play and God has a part to play. We have a part to play in receiving healing by faith, but then God's part is to raise us up. Then notice the next thing that it says. See, so many times people get hung up on, on the, uh, the prospect or the possibility that their sin is what's caused their situation. And the devil will certainly help us to think that if we'll listen to him. But even if that's the case, notice it says, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Folks, one of the things that my eyes are being continually open to 
is the reality that God doesn't want sin to keep us back from anything. He doesn't want sin to keep us back in, from anything in any way. And it seems to me, and forgive me if I start preaching some of this morning service again, but it seems like, well, there's no seems like to it. It's a fact. In the Old Testament, they were dominated. Their lives were dominated by the knowledge of sin. Their lives were dominated by the reality that they could not stand before God without making ritual sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again. Folks, we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Sin should not play a place of importance in our lives. We shouldn't go through our lives thinking about sin. That should not be first and foremost on our minds. We should think, if uh, certainly, most importantly, we should think about the fact that the blood of Jesus has delivered us from sin. It's delivered us from spiritual death. We should focus on the fact that we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And as such, healing belongs to us. Right here in context with James chapter 5, again verse 15, the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, notice if, if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now what's the availing much that he's talking about? This is a principle. It's not just a specific context that he's referring to. The principle is the righteous should expect God to hear and answer their prayers. Why? Because the Bible says he will. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But we so often get in such a condition and such a place in our life where we feel burdened down and dominated by sin, by our own wrongdoing. And we are so sorrowful for that. But that sorrowfulness over having missed the mark, over having stumbled into temptation, that's not supposed to dominate our thinking. We're supposed to come boldly to the throne of God, confess our sins, make things right, and then recognize that we're here to walk in the earth as righteous God men and women here on, in this place. We're right here in James, back up to verse 1. What does this prayer of faith? By the way, the word prayer there is the word vow. It means a declaration. It says the declaration of faith. This is not the word that's used even for the general term prayer, which is usually the Greek word that means oratory worship. It's a general term. It's, a, it's a, a, an inclusive catch-all type, type phrase or word. And it can be used in any application regarding communication with God. That's not what this word is. It says the vow of faith shall save the sick. It's the vow. It's the declaration of faith that brings healing to our bodies. James starts off in James chapter 1 verse 2. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation there is test or trial. Affliction, in other words. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The reason we have to count it joy is because it is certainly not joyful. So we have to offer the sacrifice of praise. We have to choose to worship God and declare his goodness based upon his word, based upon his promises. Because it sure doesn't feel like a joyful time for us. 
So he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In other words, he's saying, don't be concerned about things not changing instantly. The Bible tells us through faith and patience we inherit the promise. Well, that's time. That's maintaining your vow, your declaration of God's word and his promises. The vow of faith, in other words. It's us maintaining that. Even if things delay and even if things go longer than we want them to. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. In other words, it'll bring you to victory if you'll just hold fast to it. Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Let me stop there and make a couple of comments. The Bible says, and uh, Paul wrote to the, the Corinthians, and he said, Christ has made unto us wisdom. He's made unto us wisdom. One of the things that we have access to because we've been born again, because we're children of God, one of the things, one of the blessings, one of the benefits that we have is access to the wisdom of God. Well, does James not know that? Does James not know that the Spirit of God that lives within us is the wisdom of God that will lead us and guide us in every situation? Well, of course he knows that. He would have to know that. So then what is he talking about asking wisdom for? He's talking specifically about being in the circumstance of tests, trials, or troubles. He's saying, if you need specific wisdom during this trial or temptation or adversity that you're in, ask of God. God will give you specific wisdom. See, he's not talking about generally that Jesus has made unto us wisdom. He's talking specifically about in the middle of a trouble or a test or a trial. So he says, if any of you lack wisdom, if you need to know what to do in your trouble, in your temptation, in your affliction, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. God won't answer your question or your seeking for wisdom with something like, you're such an idiot, why don't you already know? He won't upbraid us. He's kind and, and merciful enough to provide wisdom to us. He gives it to all men liberally. But, verse 6, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. An un, uh, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, the next verse says. Now notice what he's talking about. Now James is not going to talk about faith in a different context in chapter 1 than he's going to talk about faith in chapter 5, is, is he? He can't be talking about two different things. This vow of faith in James chapter 5, which heals the sick, has got to be the same faith that brings results concerning wisdom in your trouble. And notice what he says. He says, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. Notice he goes from a principle of asking for wisdom to a general, I'm sorry, from the specifics of asking for wisdom in a specific situation or specific test or trial or temptation to showing us a principle about receiving anything from the Lord. Let's read it again. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. He goes from talking about wisdom specifically to a principle of anything. 
He says it's necessary for us to ask in faith and walk in faith and operate in faith to receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in every way or all of his ways. We shouldn't expect to receive anything from God except through this thing called faith. Now, folks, what is that? There are so many things that in our modern-day church world, and the church has always had its own language. There's no question about that. One of the things I appreciated about Brother Hagin and really related to him about is because he didn't get caught up in the catchphrases in the modern-day Christian terms. He said things the way the Bible says it. Well, I understand that better. There are times, and, and you know as well as I do, that people can mean a million different things when they use the word faith nowadays. I've had people come to us after healing school numerous times, and they'll want prayer for healing, and I'm perfectly willing and satisfied to do that. But I'll ask them, what are you standing on? What are you believing? And I've had people say, oh, I have faith, and try to leave it there. Well, I don't know what that means. I know what the Bible means when it uses that terms, those terms, but is that what their, their meaning is? Is that what they're trying to communicate? So I'll ask, what do you mean by that? And I've been surprised with some of the weirdest answers. Some of the things that people think is faith. And I, I, I don't guess I've ever done it. I've always wondered, who taught you that? Where did you come up with this? Did you come up with this weirdness on your own or did somebody have to teach you? So what is he talking about? What is this prayer, this vow, this declaration of faith that shall save the sick? Well, right here we see that James is talking about being steadfast in this thing called faith. He's speaking about being steadfast rather than wavering. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, let's start reading in verse, uh, well, verse 23 is the one I want to get to. Let's start in verse 20. No, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which, has which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we can see first and foremost, this thing he's talking about faith has to do with our heart or our, the spirit of man, not the flesh. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. He, Paul, if, I think Paul is the author of the book of Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews is inspired by the Holy Ghost. And so it's the Holy Ghost giving this author, this writer, the information to share with the people. The same Holy Ghost is inspiring James to write about asking in faith, nothing wavering. And notice they both use the same example. James said, a man that wavers is driven with the wind and tossed like a wave of the sea. He's up one day, down the next. He's in faith one day and unbelief the next. What does Paul, again if Paul is the author here, either way it's the Holy Ghost that's telling us. What is the Holy Ghost directing us to do to counteract or to prevent wavering? 
He says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. The word profession is the word confession. In other words, he says, it's about your words. You hold fast by confessing what God's word says. You receive wisdom. You receive anything and everything from God through your words. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 6. I think this is chapter 6. I really wasn't planning to go here, but we'll see. Well, it's not chapter 6. I didn't write it down in my notes. Let me tell you the story and you can find it for yourself. The Bible talks about wickedness covering the earth. It talks about the, the uh, difficulties that were being presented because of the uh, lack of righteousness, lack of following God, worship of God, and so forth. And it tells us about a certain group of people that decided that they were going to build a, t- uh, a tower into heaven. You remember that? Where it talks about the, the Tower of Babel? Their plan was to make a name for themselves. The scripture says they said, that let's make a name for ourselves by making this tower. And it says that God looked down upon the people that were involved in this. And God's concern was that these people operating obviously contrary to the will and the purpose of God, operating to provide something for themselves and create some alternate God that they can worship, maybe even themselves, by the building of this tower. And God says something very interesting about this. He said, let's go down to the earth. This is God talking to Jesus and the Holy Ghost, apparently. They have a meeting about this of some type. And God said, let us go down and confound their language. Because this they've set their heart to do. And nothing shall be restrained for them, whatever they imagine. Now, folks, these are not righteous people. These are not godly people. These are rank sinners. People that have come from idol worship. And probably what they're doing would promote idol worship in even a greater manner and a greater measure. But God said, if I don't do something to stop their agreement, the agreement of their words, then nothing, no evil, no thing will be impossible to them, whatever they imagine. Now, folks, if that's true, and of course we believe it is, if it's true that the words of people working together, can provide or create either good or bad, bad in their case. The only option that God had was to confound their language. He had to make it so that they couldn't say the same things to each other. Now, if that's true where sin and sinfulness and ungodliness is concerned, how much more true would that be when we speak God's word in unison? How much more power would it provide if God is behind what we're saying rather than having to confound our language so that they don't succeed? And and everything about the story concerning the Tower of Babel points to the fact that they would have succeeded. They would have been able to do whatever they imagined to do irrespective of God's plan, irrespective of God's purpose if he hadn't changed their language. It didn't matter how strong the people were or how weak the people were. 
if they're working together saying the same thing, it was in God's mind at least a sure thing that they would be able to accomplish it. And the only way to stop it is to change their words. God didn't just kill their leader. That would have had an impact on him. But he changed their words. I don't think we've plumbed the depths of the power of God that's demonstrated or displayed through the words that we speak. And that's the one issue that James brings up when he talks about asking of God, specifically wisdom in the middle of a test or a trial. But generally, as any principle to receive anything of God uh, itself. We've got to hold fast our confession. In other words, our words are of greatest importance. Well, notice again what we read over in James chapter 5, verse 15. It says, the prayer of faith, literally the vow or the declaration of faith, shall heal the sick. How do you make a declaration or a vow without speaking? In other words, James 5.15 is saying your words, not the elders, not the all, your words shall bring healing to your bodies. Well, then what do we need the elders for? Well, you really don't. But there's an implication in the language, the Greek language that's used here, that would imply that somebody was in a condition where they couldn't do it for themselves and so they needed help. Thank God help is available. We all wind up needing help sometime, don't we? But the elders are simply there to help. And it wouldn't do the elder, it wouldn't do the sick or the elders any good for the elders to pray and the sick not make the same declaration or agree with the same declaration of faith. Folks, it all comes down to words. Turn with me to Mark chapter 11. What is this thing, this prayer of faith? Can't get too far talking about the subject of faith without getting into Mark chapter 11. After Jesus curses the fig tree and comes by the next morning and it's dried up the roots, the disciples bring it to his attention. Verse 22, and Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Other translations say have the faith of God. Well, what is the faith of God other than the God kind of faith? If God has it, it has to be the God kind, doesn't it? So have the faith of God or the God kind of faith. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, meaning his spirit, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. I want you to notice, folks, Jesus starts off talking about this thing called faith, and he said it comes down to believing in the heart and saying with your mouth, just like God created the worlds. In just exactly the same manner that God used to create this world and everything we know in the physical realm. Even the unseen physical realm. Folks, we know that there are stars in the sky because we see them. Well, those stars are real planets. They're real physical entities. We can't see them. We might see the light from them sometimes if it gets dark enough. But there are unseen parts of the physical realm in the universe that we accept, generally accept to be true having never witnessed them, having never touched them, having never, having never visited them. We believe even in the unseen things in the physical realm. 
Why should it be such a hard thing for us to believe in the unseen things of the spirit realm? Jesus answering said, have faith in God or have the God kind of faith. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray. Notice verse 23 didn't say a word about praying. It's talking about faith being used or exercised or operated just simply by believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. Now in verse 24, he's going to talk about how faith works in prayer. That's the prayer of faith that James talked about, isn't it? It would have to be. So he said, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So if we identify what Jesus is defining as the prayer of faith with the same thing that James said, James 5.14 or James 5.15, he said, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. We can substitute this definition that Jesus gives us for the prayer of faith and expect it to work seamlessly. In other words, the prayer of the declaration of faith is the prayer where we believe that we receive when we pray. And the prayer that believes it receives when it prays shall heal the sick. The prayer that believes it receives when it prays shall heal the sick. And we can do that in every place that the Bible talks about what faith is and identifies any and every characteristic of faith. Some fit a little better than others, but it's all the same truth. For example, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 is generally, generally recognized as the Bible definition of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This doesn't fit nearly as well as what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, but it still works. James 5.15, The prayer of faith shall save the sick, or shall heal the sick. That prayer of faith, as defined by Hebrews 11.1, 1, the prayer of the substance of things hoped for. The prayer of the substance of things hoped for. And the prayer of the substance of things hoped for shall heal the sick. What is the substance of things hoped for? The faith that comes by hearing the word. So we could even say it's the word of God. The thing that gives substance to our hope is the word of God. That means the definition in James chapter 5 verse 15 could very easily be said to be this. And the prayer of the word of God shall heal the sick. Second part of the definition in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The prayer of the evidence of things not seen shall heal the sick. The prayer of the evidence of things not seen shall heal the sick. How are we going to know about something that we can't see? There's only one way we can know, folks, and that's through God's word. So it comes down to God's word again. The prayer of the word of God that gives evidence to the things that we cannot see shall heal the sick. Look with me to Romans chapter 4. As I said, some of these things fit a little better than the others, but they all work. Romans chapter 4, this is talking about Abraham's faith. Beginning in verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. It's talking about the promise that God made to Abraham to have children but when he was 100 years old or about 100 years old, he hadn't yet had that child of promise. And so God in dealing with him and getting him back into the position of faith where he could receive Isaac, where Isaac could be born, 
brought Abraham to the place where he operated in faith to take hold of God's promise. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed. That word before really means like unto him whom he believed. In other words, it's saying that Abraham started acting like God. Now, what's the difference in acting like God and what Jesus said, have the faith of God? Tell me the difference. See, a lot of times you say things like, make the statements like I just made about Abraham acting like God and we're supposed to act like and imitate God too, which the Bible says. The Bible t- says be imitators of God. Well, how in the world are we going to imitate God? This says how to do it. It says, here's how Abraham was like unto God. Here's how Abraham operated that was like unto God. Here's Abraham operating in the God kind of faith. Before him whom he believed, or like unto him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Let me use the second one first. The prayer of faith is the prayer that calls things that be not as though they were. The prayer of faith, the vow of faith, the declaration of faith is the kind of prayer, is the kind of declaration that calls things that be not as though they were. Now the other part of that, being like God who quickens the dead. I had a lot of trouble with that for many years. How can you be like God in quickening the dead? Well, how does God bring dead things to life? Through his word. This simply means that Abraham, some way, in some form, somehow, Abraham started speaking life to his body instead of death. No matter what he saw, no matter the death that he saw in his body, no matter what the age and the impact of his age had in his ability or or Sarah's ability to bear children, for them to become parents, somehow or another, he began speaking life to his own body. He had to, and the Holy Ghost is telling us that he did. So Abraham was like unto God by calling things that be not as though they were and speaking life to his flesh, who against hope, that just simply means he didn't have any natural or physical circumstances to rely on, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. It simply means he got his hope from what God said. He didn't have any source of hope or any foundation for hope in anything else that was going on in his life. He looked at his body, and his body looked dead. He looked at Sarah's body, and her body looked dead. She had been through menopause. She was no longer in what we would consider in any way able to have children. Same thing with Abraham. But he began to speak life to her bodies. Why did he speak life to their bodies? Why did he call things that be not as though they were? Because God had spoken to him and said, so shall your seed be so shall your seed be. It tells us the next thing that Abraham did. It said, being not weak in faith, by the way, that's a choice. And being not weak in faith, choosing not to be weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. In other words, he's looking at the physical condition of their bodies, saying physically, naturally, there's no way for us to have children. But God said, Your seed will be like the stars of the sky. God had already appeared to Abraham. And Abraham asked God simply to 
bless, I, uh, bless uh, Ishmael, the child he had had with, Hag- uh, with Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. He just simply said, I'm too old to have kids. Just bless, bless Ishmael. And God said, well, I will because he's yours, but that's not the child I promised you. The child I promised you will be born of Sarah about this time next year. And so he has a choice to make. He, meaning Abraham, has a choice to make. He's got God's word on one hand that says, so shall your seed be. On the other hand, he's got physical evidence in his body and Sarah's body that this cannot be done. It cannot come to pass. What's he going to choose? He's got a situation that looks impossible from the physical standpoint, but he's got a promise from God. And his choice was made solely on the decision he made to trust God and believe that God's word was true no matter what it looked like or what it felt like. Folks, I think one of the things that's difficult for us to uh, reconcile or difficult for us to accept is that impossible situations are exactly the place that God likes to move. God is the God that quickens the dead, makes alive the dead. While Abraham's body and Sarah's bodies are dead reproductively, but he's got a promise. He's got a word from God that says, so shall your seed be. So one of the things that he did to maintain his strength of faith or to stay strong in faith, or to make sure that he doesn't waver, which would have blown the whole thing. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. It doesn't mean he denied the condition of their flesh. It means he looked unto something else instead. He focused his attention on something else. What did he focus his attention on? Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Where it says he staggered not at the promise of God, it means he looked at the promise of God instead of looking at his body. Again, he's not in denial, but he takes the position that God's word can change the condition or the physical circumstance of his flesh. So he staggered not at the promise. What would staggering at the promise mean? It would mean the same thing as wavering. It would mean if he staggered at the promise, he might believe one day, but then not feel very good the next day be overwhelmed by the circumstances and say, God, I don't know why this isn't going to work. Why didn't you come to me when I was younger, when we were both younger? This would have been an easy situation, but that's not what he did. He didn't stagger at the promise of God. Now, folks, realize the impossibility of the word of God when judged by his physical circumstances. God is telling Abraham that something will take place that is absolutely impossible from physical circumstances. Absolutely impossible. It'd be easy to stagger at that, wouldn't it? It'd be easy to say, well, God, I'm sure you mean well, but come on. But he didn't stagger at the promise of God. That means he chose to keep his attention focused on what God said more than his attention was focused on his body. That means he came up every morning saying something like this, I may not feel like I'm strong enough to have a child Sarah may not feel like she's strong enough to have a child. She had to operate in faith too, the Bible says. But thank God he had a promise. You do too. Whatever situation you're facing, whatever circumstance you're in, you've got a promise from God too, and it may seem just as impossible as it did to Abraham. 
But everything about success or failure is going to be determined by what we look at. It's what determines the success of Abraham. It all comes down to what did he look at. He staggered not at the promise, but looking under the promise of God. In other words, he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So we can say the prayer of faith is not only the prayer that that calls things that be not as though they are. It's not only the prayer that speaks life unto dead circumstances that surround us. But it's the prayer that looks unto the promise of God. It's the prayer that gives glory to God before it sees the answer. It's the prayer that accepts that God is able to perform his word no matter how impossible it may seem. See, the modern day church casually says that God has promised to answer every prayer. That's really not true. God has promised to answer every prayer that's prayed in faith. God has promised to answer every prayer that's based upon his word. And you can't separate faith from his word. Romans ten seventeen. so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The only way you can have Bible faith is by the word of God. Bible faith is built on the foundation of God's word. And that's the only way it can be built. So when Abraham is giving glory to God before he sees the answer, that has to mean of necessity. It has to mean that he accepted the word of God and kept his eyes on the word of God more so than he did the circumstances. It means by definition that he had to come to the place and did come to the place, thank God, where what God said was more important and more real than the circumstances in his flesh. Now, folks, we don't get there overnight, but we can get there. Abraham got there in less than a year. From the time that God appeared to Abraham and said that Sarah would bear a son this time next year, which was the impetus for Abraham getting back in faith, apparently he had let the promises of God slip in that regard. But assuming that Sarah had a normal pregnancy of nine months, period, Abraham got there in three months. And he was strong in faith. The prayer that gives glory to God shall heal the sick. The prayer that is persuaded that God's promise is true no matter what the circumstances indicate. That's the prayer that heals the sick. And we have got a divine eternal promise that God always answers those prayers. Always. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your healing mercy, Father. We choose to operate according to the faith of God. We choose to operate in the God kind of faith. We choose, Father, in Jesus' name to accept what your word reveals to us that has been done on our behalf. Your word says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed. Father, it may not look like we're healed. There may be sickness in our bodies, but we choose to believe your word. We don't deny the circumstance of our flesh, but we choose 
to make our declaration of faith. We say that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We say that you restore our health and heal our wounds. We say that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Father, we are fully persuaded that your word is stronger and more real and more true than any circumstance, any symptom in our flesh. We don't deny that our flesh is what it is, but through our faith-filled words, we command our bodies to line up with the word of God. We speak healing into our lives. We speak healing into our bodies. Satan, we serve notice on you. We recognize that the power of God is greater than anything you can do. The power of God's word is greater than everything that you can do. And we believe God. Thank you, Father. We bless your holy name. And we forget not all your benefits. You forgive all our iniquities. You heal all our diseases. You redeem our life from destruction and crown us with loving kindness and tender mercy. You renew our youth like the eagles by satisfying our mouths with good things. We thank you, Father, that according to your word, because we set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call upon you, you answer us. You're with us in trouble. You deliver us and you honor us. With long life, you satisfy us and show us your salvation. We bless you, Lord. And we believe, even as Jesus said, that when we speak to the circumstances of our body, from our hearts, based upon your word, based upon the finished work of Jesus and maintain our confession of faith. We believe, Father, even as Jesus said, we shall have whatsoever we say. Thank you, Father, that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus.